Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. I'm a little surprised that investors didn't take advantage of currency hedge ETFs as they could have. And I agree with you that earlier in the year would have been better than now. Hi, all, and welcome to Exchange Traded Fridays with ETF.com. I'm Managing Editor Heather Bell, and I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Sumit Roy. Hey, Sumit. Hey, Heather. Hey, everyone. Today, we're speaking with Aniket Ulal, Head of ETF Data and Analytics at CFRA Research. Thanks for joining us, Aniket. Great to be here, Heather. Hi, Sumit. Thanks for inviting me. We're really happy to have you. I was just hoping to start off with the fact that the dollar is strengthening and the pound hit a long-term low on Monday. Should investors be considering currency ETFs? And if so, what should they be looking at? Absolutely. I think this is a very important story for investors right now. Probably not one that we anticipated at the beginning of the year. Obviously, in the first half of the year, we were talking more about the Ukrainian invasion, as well as the implications of that for commodities and so on. But certainly, and then, of course, uh, inflation and interest rates. So those are kind of the dominant narratives in the first half of this year. But I think currencies is certainly an important economic indicator and certainly an important thing for investors to look at. And there's different ways to look at this. One is, of course, to look at just currency pair ETFs, right? Taking a view on the dollar versus other currencies or the dollar versus a basket of currencies using ETFs. But then there's, of course, currency hedged ETFs where one can take, uh, you know, get exposure to an international market, but hedge the currency movements. And then there's more indirect implications. Uh, you know, for example, a strengthening uh, dollar may actually make, uh, for example, you know, imports cheaper, exports more expensive, and so on. The implications for trade, which are kind of longer term implications for investors. So there's a whole lot to unpack here. But in, I would say the most immediate thing to look at is currency pair ETFs, which are certainly very interesting and probably haven't got the attention they, they should. And currency hedged ETFs are, of course, pretty interesting in this environment, right, Heather? Those used to be very, very popular. When was it in 2015, 2016, ATVJ, DXJ were blowing up? I think they accumulated tens of billions of dollars of assets. Do you remember what year that was? I think it might have even been as far back as 2012. I I seem to remember that like DXJ and HEDG hedge, they got really huge. They're like, I think they're both like $1 billion funds now, but they were, I think, heading up toward over $20 billion. Am I insane or was that the flows into them? Yeah, it was something crazy. And that was, of course... In that first dollar rally, I think it was 2013, 14, 15, the dollar just took off. And of course, the currency hedged ETFs helped insulate you against that move. And it seems like they fell out of favor for a few years because the dollar really didn't do anything between 2015 and 2020. Yet here we are again, and the dollar is once again going parabolic at a 20-year high. So people want to hedge out that currency risk again, though I do wonder, 
the dollar is at a 20 year high, is it too late to hedge the currency exposure, right? Because now if the dollar does decline over the next one year, two years, three years, the unhedged international stock ETFs are going to outperform the currency hedge ETF. So maybe you want the exposure to international currencies now that the dollar is so high and international currencies are so low. Yeah, I agree with you. I think one thing I remember that period when the Japanese currency hedge ETFs really took off and took in a lot of assets. And what surprised me this time around is that currency hedge ETFs actually haven't taken in as much money as one would expect. I mean, if I look at, for example, Japan, uh, EWJ, which is the unhedged uh, Japan ETF, is down 17% year to date. The hedged one is down 5.9%. Uh, if you look at emerging markets, the unhedged version is down 27%. Hedged is down 20%. We're talking 6 7% differences here um, between hedged and unhedged versions, which is very significant for investors. But despite that, we've actually seen negative to marginal inflows into the hedged versions. For example, HEFA, which is the currency hedged EFA ETF, actually had only like uh, 835 million uh, in assets. Some, in fact, some of them like HEEM actually had negative flows this year. So I'm a little, I don't know if any of you have explanations for this, but I'm a little surprised that investors didn't take advantage of currency hedge ETFs as they could have. And I agree with you that earlier in the year would have been better than now. But though, of course, all signs still point to a strong dollar, uh, even going towards the end of this year. Yeah, that is interesting. I actually wrote an article, I think earlier this week or late last week, time has no meaning, about how currency hedged ETFs had been uh, outperforming their unhedged counterparts. And like you said, Anagat, one of the things that really surprised me was that the flows to those funds have been very minimal. I just wondered if like investors forgot about them or, I don't know, somehow got turned off of them when they're heyday faded like almost a decade ago. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery. I think it's possible that the bigger narratives in the market have investors been more focused on those, like we said, inflation and, and rates and so on. So I think it's certainly possible that investors are focused on bigger picture, other bigger picture issues. But I do think that it's possible investors may have missed a, you know, an opportunity here because it's very clear, that, like you said, the performance differentials are quite significant and one would think that they'd be much larger than they are. Right, right. And I do think this dollar rally kind of caught a lot of people by surprise. No one expected it to go this high. And before you know it, it's at a 20 year high. It's kind of too late to make portfolio adjustments based on it. And especially with inflation in the US at 40 year highs, people aren't thinking, oh, the dollar is going to strengthen in that environment. Yet it is because inflation is even higher in Europe and they're dealing with an energy crisis and things are arguably even worse over there. There were some fundamental factors, I think, that drove a stronger dollar. Certainly rates going up in the U.S. is always going to uh, drive uh, demand for, for the dollar. Uncertainty, global uncertainty about you know, economic uh, outside the U.S., the dollar is always a safe haven. So I think certain elements were um, somewhat more predictable, but I think there were certain other things that caught people by surprise. Like you said, for example, the UK's, you know, the new UK government coming out with its unexpected policies, uh, fiscal policies and so on, which drove the pound down. So it's probably a combination of some fundamental factors that 
uh, a longer term that drove the dollar, um, strength of the dollar, and then other factors, more idiosyncratic, specific to specific countries that again favored the stronger dollar. But all of these in together, one would expect this to continue for some time. And in, in fact, I think we're, we are in an unusual period now in terms of currency and investors certainly should be paying attention to, to both currency pair and currency hedge ETFs. Anaket, I was wondering, have you been keeping track of what's going on with the single stock ETF filings and launches. Um, I was really surprised today when I saw that the issuers that had filed for the single stock non-US ETFs had basically withdrawn all their filings. I think the Financial Times reported it was like 130 filings in all. That is a little surprising at one level because you know it seemed like the single stock ETF category was going to grow. There's been a lot of talk from different issuers about launching products. However, if one looks at the products that have already launched, they don't seem to have got a lot of traction. I haven't seen the latest numbers, but if I look at the original 16 ETFs that launched, I think they were from AXS, Granite Shares, Direction. Those 16 ETFs only have about 150 million in, in assets. I mean, that's a small number. I don't know if it's sponsors reevaluating, you know, whether that they haven't caught on and therefore holding back. I'm not sure. I mean, they've only been in the market for a couple of months. So it seems early for them to pull out. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what drove drove the withdrawal of the filing, but one thing is clear: they haven't, they've not been a home run off the bat, right? This is either they're going to take time to pick up, or they may not catch on entirely. But they've certainly not been a home run on day one. And are you surprised by that, Anakit, given that we have seen some interest in leveraged ETFs tied to indexes, like TQQQ is a very popular one. I think it's actually on the top 10 inflows for the list out of all ETFs, very strong demand for that product. Have you been surprised that we haven't seen that type of interest in leveraged Tesla ETFs and things like that? I am surprised because when I looked at the initial list of ETFs at launch, some of them were were linked to stocks that are more, I guess one could call, I don't want to call the meme stocks, but certainly stocks that tend to have strong narratives tied to them by Tesla and so on. Others like Pfizer and Nike, I'm not sure people are going to take very strong directional views on uh, stocks like that, but certainly things like Tesla or even things tied to payments, you know, um, that tend to have more narrative-based stories or to also more variations or unpredictability around earnings. I thought there would be more traction. And not surprisingly, the two Tesla ones have the most assets, but even those only have 50 or 60 million in assets. So not as big as one would have expected. I was wondering maybe if maybe the SEC has a certain lack of comfort with approving these products if they are targeting foreign equities, because the SEC doesn't really have any like authority over foreign equities. So that's a great point. It's possible they got indirect signals or something. You know, we don't know, you know, what the backstory is in terms of at least I don't know in terms of what may have happened there. It's certainly clear that when the original ones got approved, one of the commissioners had some concerns about it, even put out a statement saying that, you know, these things shouldn't have been approved. So it, it was very clearly a divisive issue even within the SEC. Anakit, I am curious to get your take on this idea of protecting investors from themselves. A lot of people believe that 
these leverage and inverse funds shouldn't exist at all. Where do you stand on that debate? It's a hard one because, you know, on the one hand, you're trading off access to products versus, you know, uh, education. I, I tend to fall more on the side of having a little more freedom and allowing products to launch. Because I do think that the right solution is having product availability along with the right education. So in general, I'd say I do fall more in the camp of not restricting product launches too much. I do think it is important to educate investors. I mean, one can't put products out that can hurt investors without the right education. But in general, I, I do think that not having too many restrictions is probably a good thing. And it's generally been one of the strengths of the U.S. capital markets is, is a little bit more flexibility and, and kind of finding the right balance. So I, I tend to lean a little bit more in that direction. I don't, I don't know how you think about it. Yeah, I feel exactly the same way. I think it's all about education. And once you give investors education, I think they're ultimately going to make the right choice for themselves and their own financial objectives. I, I also wanted to talk to you, Aniket, about inflows. Obviously, this is something we follow very closely at ETF.com. We track the flows daily, weekly, monthly. And I've been surprised with just how resilient flows into U.S. listed ETFs have been this year, $400 billion year to date into U.S. listed ETFs with one quarter to go. Are you surprised by that, given that we do have a bear market in stocks? We have a bear market pretty much in bonds, right? The worst year for bonds in many, many decades, if not centuries. Why do you think ETF flows are so resilient this year? The problem with analyzing ETF flows is there's so many different factors that come in. One is there's long-term secular factors, you know, like the fact that people are adopting ETFs over buying single securities or traditional mutual funds. And then the shorter fact, shorter term factors like people getting in and out of the market. Uh, but I think as now that ETFs cover most of the major asset classes, I don't think it's a surprise that inflows will be positive because if they even if they exit one asset class, they're probably going to rotate into another. And I think the flows probably reflect more kind of secular interest in the ETF as an investment vehicle. Uh, that would be my guess. Uh, you know, it's at the end of the day, we're kind of as a, as analysts or market observers, we're kind of making, I guess, educated guesses about what's happening. But uh, you know, if, if ETFs were only equity, for example. And and we saw a lot of inflows. I would have been surprised. But now that equities, now that ETFs cover multiple asset classes, multiple strategies, and so on, uh, I think it's probably reflecting more the fact that ETFs have become kind of the investment vehicle of choice. And uh, you know, we've seen now for many years that um, traditional active equity funds, for example, have had negative outflows, even though ETFs have had positive inflows. So I think to some extent, it's those secular factors that may be coming into play. That's a great point. And I'm going to throw this out to both of you, Anakit and Heather, if either of you want to answer. Do you have any wild guesses for where we end up in terms of inflows for the year? I'm just going to extrapolate and say $500 billion, total wild guess. Well, you guys follow this more closely than I am, so I'm happy to go with, <laughs> with your number. But yeah, that sounds... That sounds about right. I mean, again, I do think that if one looks at the behavior of the big asset managers, the active managers, a lot of them are either planning to launch or are in the process of launching or have recently launched ETFs. So I think as a product category, uh, it's going to continue to grow. Oh, yeah. I think that's a really good point because you're going to have these large, we have, we've had what, Newberger Berman, I believe it was? Yes. And Alliance Bernstein and Capital Group all 
enter the market this year and they're going to be shifting their own assets into those funds. So that could really boost flows. I had never really thought about that before, but yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. I mean, these are big, some of the biggest asset managers, you know, in the world. I mean, I think capital group before Vanguard took over was the largest asset manager uh, in the U S for example. So I, I do think that their shift internally towards ETFs is going to continue to be a very significant driver in the space. Well, the other thing that's like kind of been standing out to me this year is the fact that energy ETFs are so outsized in their returns while everything else appears to be down. I was wondering, one, is that unusual? And two, do you think people have missed the boat if they haven't jumped into energy so far yet? Or is there, I mean, do you think even that there's more runway there? I, I, it's hard to say, you know, energy is difficult to say. It's a bit of a, I mean, I certainly think we're in a long-term commodity cycle. So, uh, but I do think a lot of the pricing is probably built in. And certainly the, like I said, they've been the most kind of best performing categories. I think what's unusual about this year is because we've got rising rates, you know, uh, high inflation, I think both equities and and bonds got hit simultaneously. And so there haven't really been places to hide really. And there, that's why I was actually looking at the list of ETFs that were had positive returns or ETF categories rather. There aren't that many, right? It's a lot of them are firstly, the top of the list is all the commodity futures based ones, particularly natural gas. And then there's the equity uh, energy ETFs, which kind of dominate the list. And then the single country ETFs that, that kind of make the cut that had positive returns are all countries that are tied to either commodities or materials in some way, right? I saw Brazil in there, Chile, Qatar, you know, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's not surprising to see those ETFs on that list. The one I have to confess that did surprise me was Turkey. I don't know if you've, if you've been paying attention to that, but I still haven't figured out why Turkey has been doing so well. I mean, they've had very unusual macroeconomic situation. I think their inflation rate is like 80%, but they're still lowering interest rates. So it's a very unusual kind of uh, approach they've taken. And uh, I think the details of the Turkish economy, part of the reason maybe it's just a very, I think a large part of their ETF is industrials and, and materials and very capital intensive kind of businesses. So the government may have, and their central bank may have decided to keep interest rates low to kind of stimulate growth. But uh, that was a kind of an unusual one that jumped out at me. But other than that, you're right, it's been primarily uh, direct commodity, in other words, commodity futures or equity commodity and equity energy type type ETFs. I saw Turkey's performance too. It just seemed very anomalous because I had looked at their inflation rate and I was like, whoa. (laughs) So I was wondering, does that mean like that economy could be headed for a big crash or something like that? I would think uh, the fundamentals seem uh, certainly don't seem very good. I mean, you know, I think their president had a quote saying economic theories aren't valid everywhere, unlike physics or mathematics. So (laughs) that is which technically may be true, but then, you know, um, they're certainly taking an unusual macro macroeconomic kind of approach uh, to their fiscal policy and monetary policy. But yeah, it's hard to say. Uh, that, so that one surprised me because the returns don't seem in sync with what the fundamentals, what's happening with the fundamentals in the economy. But uh, other than that, yeah, I, I'm not surprised with the rest of the ETFs and the, and the best performers. In terms of Worst performers, I mean, a lot of them seem to be dominated by high beta, you know, high growth type categories. Uh, certainly, we've seen a lot of blockchain, digital 
fintech type ETFs at the bottom of the list. The one that caught my attention was actually ARKK, right? Kathy Woods ETF, which again has kind of been a proxy for high beta type investing. So for probably not a surprise to see that at the bottom of the list, though she seems to be a little bit Teflonish in the sense that she always has positive inflows despite poor performance. So <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's an interesting set, kind of list of ETFs to look at. Yeah. I was wondering, just as a last question, as we head towards wrapping uh, this episode up, is like, are investors kind of giving up on blockchain or uh, cryptocurrency? Because those crypto equities, the blockchain related equities, they've really, they're down. I mean, um, some of these funds are down like 70% year to date. And that seems very extreme. Yeah, my my take on it is that there's probably some real opportunity in those in those spaces. But these are just very, because of the nature, early nature of that, those businesses, they're very kind of high beta cyclical type businesses. So I think in a boom market, those are going to go up and in a market like we're in now, they're going to be down big. So I, I do think they're just more volatile. And so, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a long term. I think it's more a nature, more indication of the nature of the kind of exposure and the volatility of that business that they're in uh, is is my take. I, I think there are some real, I mean, even if you look at businesses like say Shopify, for example, right? They have some of these companies have quite innovative and solid business models and some of them are down 60, 70%. I don't think that these kind of stocks are going to stay down forever. So they may actually be buying opportunities in some of these, uh, some of these spaces. Absolutely. And in a year in which the triple Qs are down 35% or something like that from the high 70%, yeah, it is a lot, but these are much earlier stage, much more volatile companies than the ones you find in the triple Qs, like the Apples, the Amazons of the world. So I do agree with Anakit that, you know, that's just the nature of these type of stocks. They're volatile. Yeah, I think this is a reminder because we haven't seen that much volatility before, like, I guess maybe this year or the end of last year. And now that's where that volatility is showing up. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. I mean, the, the length of the bull market we were in is actually pretty remarkable. I, every year I'd say, okay, we're in a mature bull market and it, it kept extending. So, I mean, it was, you know, these things obviously go through cycles. So I'm actually, I mean, we started in March of 2009, pretty much. I mean, we went so many years without any serious, of course, we had some blips, but I would say pretty much a long-term kind of secular bull market. So it's probably not surprising uh, to see that we kind of see that reversing a little bit. Absolutely. Well, Aniket, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today because this was an awesome discussion. I really appreciate you taking the time to jump on this call. No worries. Thank you for inviting me and and, uh, love your work and and, uh, happy to join you again. Definitely. Listeners, thanks for joining us again. To find this and all other episodes of Exchange Traded Fridays, check out ETF.com and all the major podcast platforms. Talk to you next week. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. 